This talk was given by Chris Yudo Abram at Zen Mountain Monastery. Yudo is a senior lay student in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thank you for listening. When I was about five, um, I was outside on a day like today, um, playing up and down the driveway on my big wheel. And it was sunny, there were butterflies out, um, I didn't have a care in the world. And I thought, you know, somehow life is always going to be like this good and this safe. And on that day, um, one of the other kids I was playing with, um, his mother was there. And for some reason, she looked down at me at one point and said, I wish I was young again. And that's it. That's all she said. And I can only speculate as to what my five-year-old brain did with that. But it was enough that I remember this, this memory uh, quite vividly. And I assume I was sort of surprised by it. I might have felt sort of relieved that I wasn't old like her. Um, and because uh, from, from the way she put it, it sounded like pretty terrible. Uh, but I also probably felt a slight tightening, a slight anxiety, um, and sort of wisdom from my bones that whispered that sooner or later I would grow up and I would leave my youth behind and never go back. And it seemed that I too would then wish to be young again. And the day darkened a little bit for me in that moment. Or perhaps it was always dark to begin with, and I had only just realized it. Perhaps we know from the beginning, deep in our bodies, just how life has to unfold. I wish I was young again. And I do wish I was young again. I wish I was 18, just going off to college, or 28, moving to New York, with all these sort of like excitement and adventures ahead of me. Um, during that moment, perhaps my five-year-old brain went through various cycles of fear, bargaining, denial, distraction, in order to reckon with this kind of new truth thrust in my face. And perhaps this set in motion an initial attempt at reckoning with life and death, a way of coping with fear that I would develop and become more skilled at as my life goes on. So why is it so difficult to be a human being? During our last session in July, um, Shugen Roshi spoke out in the Zendo at one point, and he said, don't take refuge in things that are unreliable. And in Buddhism, we talk about taking refuge in the three treasures, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. And right from the beginning, this can make some sense to us. Um, you know, we're inspired by our teachers, so it's easy to trust them and take refuge in them. Uh, the Dharma resonates with us in a special way, and so it's easy to trust it. And hopefully the Sangha is a welcoming, inspiring, friendly body of people that we feel we can, we can trust and feel safe in. So it's pretty simple. But even though we may think we're taking refuge in the three treasures, we're probably also ta still taking refuge in a whole bunch of other things, which is perhaps what Shugen Roshi was talking about. And at that moment, it got me 
examining my mind and where I was, the other things that I was taking refuge in um, at that you know, afternoon in session. I mean, it, back then, July, it was actually a very hot and sweaty session, unlike uh, this one so far. And I was dreaming of you know, a cold shower I was going to take after, after dinner. Surely that would cure me of my, my misery and, and you know, um, pains. Or I was you know, inevitably dream, dreaming about the Sunday afternoon and what I would do as soon as I got off to get me happy. Uh, but even as I was dreaming of those things, I could already start to feel them sour. And of course, when I actually did do, do those things, perhaps it was like a little bit of satisfaction, but already I was um, dreaming of sort of new things that were going to save the day, you know. Um, I was taking refuge in particular thoughts and then other thoughts. And then when those thoughts sort of failed me, still other thoughts would come to the rescue. And this is just a small example, but this kind of thinking is pervasive in our lives or in my life. I'm constantly taking refuge in thoughts, um, ideas about ourselves. So what do we take refuge in? I, so I took a closer look at the sort of major categories of, of things that I take refuge in, um, like, like real refuge in, in my life, and, and how they're continuously just failing me. Um, so referring to the initial story, I take refuge in the belief that I will live forever. And obviously, we know the facts. We're not living forever. But deep down, I secretly choose not to believe that. And I'm going about my life as if I will. Surely something as terrible as old age is not going to happen to me. And that's just for other people. But of course, there's problems with that view. And as soon as we see gray hair, um, we sort of have a freak out. Um, Or we choose to mount an even larger denial campaign against what we're seeing. Um, As soon as a friend or an uncle dies, I find something in me panics in a, in a deep way um, as it sort of gets close to home. <coughs> really, though, I don't think I'm alone in this um, struggle. I think knowing and accepting the fact that we are going to die is not an easy task. And in fact, so much of our culture is staked on hiding death and helping us deny it. And in fact, entire religions are sell themselves on the fact that they're going to save, if you become a believer, they're going to save you from a final death. And it's kind of like you get a get out of jail card or something. But in Buddhism, there's a long tradition of meditating on death, not so that we can avoid it, but so that we can come to terms with it. And and we were recently studying the five remembrances um, from the Banjatana Sutta. They are, I am of the nature to grow old. There is no way to escape growing old. I am of the nature to have ill health. There is no way to escape having ill health. I am of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death. All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change. There is no way to escape being separated from them. My actions are my only true belongings. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. My actions are the ground upon which I stand. 
So these five remembrances are intended to be memorized and recited. Uh, they're things that you can say every day to remind ourselves of the truth of our lives and to counteract all the other illusions uh, that we may take refuge in. And when we can fully accept the fact that we're going to die, we can let go of all those other mechanisms inside of ourselves that are there to, to deny and suppress it. So next I looked at the, I take refuge in technology. And this is becoming, uh, seems to be becoming very pervasive, especially with the, these online, these uh, smartphones. Whereas if you walk around the city, um, and you don't see it much, obviously, at Zen Mount Monastery, but in New York or any big city, everyone's sort of like staring at their phones and kind of longing, you know, this thing hopefully can save me or something. Um, there's an enormous amount of research going on these days into longevity. And um, this, again, isn't new. Uh, humans have always been searching for the fountain of youth. Um, but there's been sort of major developments in the last uh, some years um, with the breakthrough of, you know, discovery of certain um, molecules uh, that, that um, help reverse the aging of cells and the breakdown of DNA. And so with the right supplements and behavioral changes like intermittent fasting, exercise, sleep, supplementation, diet, maybe we can possibly evade death. Um, some, some scientists think it's, it's near at hand. So at that point, who needs Buddhism? You know, old age, sickness, and death are no longer a problem. Um, we found a greater God. Uh, we can live forever. And if we can't, well, there's, um, there's this new method of freezing your body so that when humanity figures out how to live forever, you can come back to life and, and do it then. And if we can't save our bodies, perhaps we can upload our consciousness into the metaverse. And there are these new attempts at like hooking your brain into the computer. Um, and a lot of you know, energy going into this metaverse. Uh, and uh, so the metaverse can be seen as, you know, a lot of talk, there's a lot of talk about metaverse. And um, there's a definition I read about it, which is that once people start investing more effort into their online persona than into their real life, um, at that point they've entered the metaverse. And it's easier and easier with, you know, online jobs and um, Instagram, TikTok, uh, all these other kind of new uh, cloud-based realities. So there's a lot that you can, um, there's a lot of good reason maybe to take refuge in these various technologies, because um, they seem to promise a lot. I've also really been fascinated lately, and I see ChatGPT as kind of the as an ultimate model of human conditioning. Um, and it's interesting to study how it works, because it can shine some light on how our own minds work. And for those who don't know, ChatGPT is a kind of artificial intelligence that's been trained on the contents of the internet and can then generate new content based on that training. So you can chat with ChatGPT like you chat with a human, and it you know, assembles a response from all the possible like, answers um, of ChatGPT can be seen as a kind of conditioning. Uh, the way we ourselves are conditioned by our parents, our culture, our society, the media. 
And like ChatGPT, we usually respond from our conditioning automatically, and we live our lives out of it. And we're so, sort of programmed to automatically think a certain way and behave a certain way. And that's up until we take up a practice like Zazen. And in Zazen, we shine a light on our conditioning, all this kind of programming, and we learn how to become, become aware of it. We learn how to dismantle it and see beyond it so that we can experience life intimately without any filters and then express ourselves out of that. And this relates to my next refuge. I take refuge in knowledge. So ChatGPT is a perfect example of taking refuge in knowledge. So in fact, its refuge in knowledge is absolute. Um, ChatGPT has no other refuge. It is completely, you know, based on this um, conditioning, training. And I remember when I first began studying Zen, I read a lot of books and listened to tons of talks. And I would sit up in the Zen Mountain Monastery library and go through, they had like a cassette archive back then. And I would just go through all the, you know, um, topics that interested me. Um, and, um, and over time, I got pretty good at talking about Zen. Um, and whenever, you know, there's a debate going on or someone asked me a question, I would sort of piece together uh, my, you know, my response from like, well, read this here and I read that there and someone said this and so. Um, and so in a sense, I had been conditioned on Zen literature and had become sort of a little chat GPT Zen bot. You know? um, and in fact, there is a large language model um, that someone trained on all the writings of Shinryu, Shinryu Suzuki Roshi which they called Roshibot. And uh, basically the Roshibot, um, you know, they, they fed all of Shinryu, Shinryu Suzuki's talks in and um, it just basically trained on, on this. And you can, it's online, so you can access it. Um, so I, I engaged the Roshibot and I asked uh, what the sound of one hand is, because this is a famous Hakuin koan. Um, and it, it kept on kind of on duality or this or that. Um, and I kept on bringing it back. And I was like, and, and I think it noticed. It wasn't, like it noticed I was getting impatient. And eventually it said, uh, if we really want to know the sound of one hand, we can put the hand up to our ear and maybe hear the blood flowing in the veins. <laughs> so. Okay, in any case, uh, me doing all this study on Zen literature um, was uh, very similar to Roshibot. Um, and it probably wasn't a terrible outcome considering all the other things I could have conditioned myself on in life. Um, but some part of me felt kind of gross uh, just talking about Zen, just reciting what I knew. Some part of me knew this wasn't, um, there wasn't any strength there. There wasn't any, um, this wasn't the kind of freedom that I was seeking. As we say in Zen, the medicine can often become the poison. And all skillful means in Zen, all the teachings must ultimately self-destruct. And to really grasp Zen, we sort of need to do the opposite of what I had done. Uh, we need to forget everything we've read about Zen all the talks, all the sayings, the koans, the ideas. And we need to strip away everything 
until there's not a trace of conditioning left. Only then can we truly see ourselves and then can we realize uh, who we are. And then when we reassemble as a self, this person, um, we can function out of this uh, clarity. Um, and then we're no longer speaking from conditioning, but we're speaking out of our own insight. And that's ultimately the difference between the Roshi bot and a real person of the way. That's ultimately, ultimately the difference between learning about Zen and taking refuge in that knowledge and really gaining insight into our minds, into our life and our death, into our suffering and awakening the heart of compassion. Uh, there's another example of taking refuge in knowledge, um, a story that many of us know, uh, but it's fun. Uh, so someone was attending Daidaroshi on a trip, and one night they were both outside um, and saw some incredible, uh, colorful, undulating um, colors sort of floating across the night sky. And they were just Phil, you know, just watching in amazement as this thing, flickering thing, just sort of floated across the sky. And then the attendant blurted out, oh, it's a hot air balloon. And Daidaroshi replied, oh, you just killed it. Okay, so next I take refuge in money. Uh, I sometimes find myself thinking, if I can get enough money, um, then I can satisfy any desire I may have, and I can keep all the unpleasant things that I don't like um, around, uh, away from me. Um, I spent a couple of years in, in Bali, and it's kind of a joke there um, how all the Instagram photos, is, is probably the most Instagram place on earth, and all the Instagram photos show these beautiful villas and beaches and cliffs and, and uh, rice fields. And they never reveal the sort of uglier side of Bali, which is, is the overcrowding, the pollution, the mosquitoes, cockroaches, uh, the traffic, the corruption. Um, everyone's kind of mutually invested in portraying this uh, paradise island to their friends and family back home. Uh, anyway, one of the best hotels I, I got to stay in there um, during the age of COVID, when everything was discounted, uh, was this uh, hotel called the Como Ubud. And um, I had a little villa and a pool, and it overlooked this like incredible jungle gorge. And, um, you know, I had all the best toiletries and, and linens, and this whole back wall of the villa was just glass, and it had like a stone, mossy wall behind it. And, um, and for a few hours after arriving, I thought it was, you know, fantastic, and I was, you know, wanted to photograph it all and show it to people and everything. And, um, but then, I, you know, eventually I started just noticing things, like things weren't all quite right, and there was this weird noise that the air conditioning was making. <laughs> <coughs> and, um, and so I figured, well, I could have people come and fix it, or maybe I just need to go to a more exclusive resort, pay a bit more money, and get, you know, some place where they've got all that figured out. Um, and so this, this use of money to attempt to, you know, find the perfect state, 
Um, we see it um, a lot of places. You know, there's these TV series um, with the super rich, uh, Succession or White Lotus. Um, it's a real fascination uh, to watch these people. Um, and um, we often think that the more money we have, the more control uh, we, ha we have. So we can choose exactly the things that will make us happy. Um, so, and it makes sense um, to me, uh, but it never seems to really work out that way. And it's in, when I've been here this month, um, I was reflecting on this uh, in light of the life here uh, at Zen Mountain Monastery. And it's interesting to compare it with the vows of renunciation um, of, of, a, of a monk, which um, we uh, saw during the ordination last Sunday. Um, vows, of, vows of poverty, simplicity, service, um, or even just consider what happens when we come here for session. Um, we give up control of all sorts of things, um, what we eat, uh, uh, where we sleep, how long we get to sleep for, when we eat, um, and um, how long we sit for. I mean, we, we kind of voluntarily have given up an enormous amount of choice and control. Um, and yet through doing that, um, through that surrender and renunciation, um, somehow uh, it opens up our hearts. Uh, we find that we somehow enter a richer experience um, where there's a life that's about something larger than satisfying our immediate desires. We're not able to simply eliminate the things that bother us. Um, so we have to learn to accept them. And then we find they don't have the power over us in the same way. And it's counterintuitive how this works. And even after all these years of coming here for, you know, to Zen Mountain Monastery for a session and everything, um, I still find myself doubting it and wondering if there's an easier way, you know, if, just by, you know, buying things or having more money, uh, to use that to control uh, my life and my happiness. Um, okay, I've got a few more here. I, I take refuge in nice things. And that session last July, I was um, looking forward to, I had just ordered a, one of these new MacBook Airs, and I was waiting for it in the mail, and I was looking forward to getting that. Um, and figuring that somehow it's going to improve my life somehow, more, more than my previous one. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, you look at a Porsche or a Rolex watch or something. I mean, they seem really uh, quite amazing things. Um, and, yeah, I don't know, there's something about them very seductive. Uh, they say, they have this saying, retail therapy is cheaper than actual therapy. Um, and it, there's something to that. Um, okay, I take refuge in having the perfect life. I think to myself, if I only get the certain ingredients of my life right, um, a loving relationship, a family, fulfilling career, good friends, get in good shape, have a home by the beach, um, then, I'll, then I'll be happy. Uh, but we often compare ourselves to others who seem to have it all. But of course, we never finally get there. And it's, there's always, it's always just out of our reach, and we're always you know, needing something more. 
Um, we're always taking refuge in some future life and rarely the life we're actually living in. I take refuge in food, alcohol, caffeine. Um, personally, I like matcha and uh, high-grade teas, but they have to be prepared just right. Um, and even when they are prepared right, um, I'll have it, and I, I'm waiting for that kick of satisfaction, and sometimes it, it, it doesn't, doesn't come. Um, and along the same lines, we can um, get attached to food, alcohol, sex, video games, TV. Um, and I find that all these things can kind of work for a while. You know, they can provide some good feeling and some kind of momentary escape um, and satisfaction. But once we start to rely on them for it, they start to disappoint us. And we find ourselves reaching always for something else. I take refuge in having recognition and power. You know, someone finally agreed to publish your poetry or you get promoted to you know, vice president of engineering. Um, you get, you know, hit a million followers on this Instagram. Um, so whatever recognition and power we get, it's never enough. Um, and we know we, you know, it's not ours, you know, it's just this external thing. And it could be taken away at any moment. And so we're always, you know, wanting more. I take refuge in a particular state of mind. And here we might be attached to particular moods, um, particular moments in our zazen. We might be attached to always being in love or always heartbroken or, um, or perhaps it's just that special feeling we get when we go for a walk on a spring day. Or if we only got a good night's sleep, then we'd be happy. Uh, so we can take refuge in, in these things. Um, so the last one is uh, I want, I take refuge, I take refuge in winning at this game called life. So recently I was visiting my parents and I went for a walk with my dad and through the forest. It was a pretty cold, rainy day. And my dad um, certainly was an inspiration for me growing up. He had quite a successful career. He worked hard. He retired several years ago. Um, and towards the end of our walk, he was reflecting on the people he had worked with and the things that they had all accomplished together. And he talked about a colleague who he had shared a lot of projects with. And he said he wanted to find him again and take him out to lunch, just so that, he could, so that he could ask him the question, who won? You know, of all the struggles they went through, all the kind of trials and all the you know, projects and all the hard work, um, all the successes and failures, um, my dad wanted to know who won. Did they win? You know, at the end of the day, um, was it worth it? Uh, was this their moment of victory? And at the time, I really recoiled at my dad's you know, line of questioning. Um, something in it felt really disturbing and sad. And, you know, this, I guess, is this notion of a zero-sum game where for some people to win, others need to lose. Um, 
It's like that, there's a bumper sticker that reads, he who dies with the most toys wins. Um, but I think we all, or I have a similar way of, you know, wanting to win at life or wanting to always come out on top um, in comparison to others and, and things like that. So this is not unique to my, my dad, obviously. Um, but it, I was particularly disturbed because I think I was imagining that he was perhaps looking over at, at me and evaluating me in a similar way. You know, was I winning? Um, and I'm sure my life wouldn't be able to stand up to that kind of scrutiny. But at the time, I didn't say anything. And, you know, I was just kind of confused and I just wanted to, like, you know, get away. Um, but thinking about it later, I think my only answer to this question would have to be no one won. We all lose. At the end of the day, we all lose everything. And, um, you know, we can recall again the five remembrances. I'm of the nature to grow old. There is no way to escape growing old. I'm of the nature to have ill health. There is no way to escape having ill health. I'm of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death. All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change. There is no way to escape being separated from them. My actions are my only true belongings. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. My actions are the ground upon which I stand. These remembrances are reminding us that there is nothing to hang on to, and we all lose everything in the end. And in terms of these win-lose games, you know, comparing ourselves to other people, to friends, to foes. Um, if we lose, then we lose. But in Buddhism, if we win, then we also lose. Um, because if we see ourselves as a winner, um, we have to suddenly protect that image, that identity, and make sure everyone knows. And we may start getting anxious that it, again, might get stripped away, or someone may measure us differently. And whenever we fall into any one side of any duality, we get stuck. Um, this is, you know, the first noble truth. Life is suffering. Win or lose, we identify with it, and so we suffer. But the Buddha said there is another way. And in his third noble truth, he says it's possible to be free. It's possible to be at peace. And this is about being free from all dualities, win, lose, life, death, good, bad, wherever we trap ourselves. And the Buddha called this freedom the middle way. So where do we find this middle way? It can often be thought of, you know, somewhere in between the two extremes, you know, um, somewhere in between winning and losing, maybe in the kind of neutral ground. Um, we just hold steady there and hold our breath. Um, but of course, this is not it. Um, here, the middle way, we have to leap free from the dualities, from winning, the duality of winning and losing, to the place where there are no reference points. In Zen, we learn how to go beyond the games we play, the keeping score. We learn how each step, each breath, each life, each death is unobstructed, is complete, just as it is. 
Throughout heaven and earth, we ourselves are the honored one. If we lose, we should lose completely. If we win, then win completely. We are fundamentally okay at the top or the bottom, wherever we find ourselves. And when we practice in this way and realize this truth, then we return home and can finally rest. So Shugen Roshi said, don't take refuge in things that are unreliable. He's also described taking refuge as unreservedly throwing yourself upon something, like a child leaping into the arms of a parent. You have complete trust in it. And it's not that the things I've listed here don't matter in our lives. You know, it does matter to have some money, have nice things, have influence, to strive for what we want, um, to achieve some success, to feel good. Um, but when we take refuge in them, when we secretly believe that these things are going to make everything okay for us, um, that's when we set ourselves up for disappointment. And so sitting there on my cushion last session, uh, it seemed like almost every thought I was having, um, I was kind of taking refuge in. I was like, you know, infusing with some kind of like um, power to save me and was eventually just going to disappoint me. And I felt kind of, you know, spinning in a sort of vulnerable mess. But this is a necessary, necessary stage to our practice. It's necessary to examine our minds, to see how we attach to things, and then to feel the suffering that it causes. That's how we learn to let them go one by one. And this is how Zazen works. So I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha. Each time we turn inwards and choose to practice, rather than searching for something outside of ourselves, we are taking refuge in the Dharma. And as we let each thought go, we return to a vaster mystery that is not bound by thought. The Buddha is not a thought. The Dharma is not a thought. The Sangha is not a, not a thought. And we practice letting go over and over and over again, both with these large dominant themes in our lives and also with much subtler you know, shades of mind. And gradually the sphere of things we can engage with our practice you know, gets larger and larger. Ultimately, we need to give up on the idea that we are a permanent self, independent from everything else. And perhaps all these other things we've been discussing are just you know, manifestations of that belief in a self. And as we practice over the years, this conviction starts to lose its grip on us, and we experience more space in our lives, more freedom and peace. And instead of grasping onto and taking refuge in some new grand fantasy, we practice taking refuge in the three treasures. We have to do this over and over and over again until it becomes completely natural. I mean, this can seem like an encyclopedic task. You know, it could take forever. But again, that's just another thought. So the good news is, that we've already done the hardest part. We found this practice of Zazen. We found this Sangha. We found these teachers. 
Now all we have to do is keep on going straight ahead. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.